right, everybody. Well, welcome to the weekly live stream. My name is Ryan Pauly, right? to encourage you and think deeply with you about the Christian worldview and issues related to the Christian worldview. And then sometimes bring guests on as well to uh, so they, to give you the opportunity to interact with experts related to topics of the Christian worldview. And that's going to be our conversation today as we think deeply about the topic of sexuality. And joining me to do that is Christopher Yuan. Uh, he is a teacher of the Bible at Moody Bible Institute for over 10 years. He has a speaking ministry on faith and sexuality that's reached five continents. His first book that he actually co-authored with his mom is Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. He's also author Giving a Voice to the Voiceless, and he is now, uh, his newest book that came out a little while ago, as you see there, is called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Story. So Christopher Yuan, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Ryan, good to see you again. So good to virtually. See you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, man. As as I, we were kind of just chatting a little bit there, just so blessed by your ministry and your story, which mm, we're going to be thanks. talking about, because again, this is an issue that I think is really difficult for Christians to understand how to address appropriately. And Amen. I think that you've, you've done this and, and, and this is what we're going to be talking about. And so I really am just encouraged by your ministry and kind of getting to know you and meeting you a couple times in person. So I really do appreciate you coming on and helping me to think through it, as well as uh, all the people that are going to watch this to think through it as well. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, um, and then again, I want to encourage uh, those of you who are watching. Uh, we want to take your questions. We want to address uh, the the specific issues that you have. Is this book really tries to help Christians respond to uh, gay family members and friends and, and people and really think biblically about this issue? So send in those questions, and we would love to uh, try to address those as well. Um, but uh, why don't we start really quick as uh, kind of sure. uh, you know why is this something that uh, it, it, you have spent time speaking on and writing on. Why is this uh, kind of something that you focused on? Can you tell your story? Yeah, you know, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I wrestled with my sexuality from a young age. Uh, I was nine years old when I was first exposed to pornography, and it was at that time that I recognized that I had these desires for the same sex. Well, I didn't tell anyone. You know, I'm, I'm born in 1970, and so I was raised in the 80s. And at that time, we, this was sexuality was not talked about. So I, I kept it hidden to myself and I didn't tell anyone, um, at, you know, even through high school, college, and even when I was in the Marine Corps Reserves. It wasn't until my early 20s and that uh, I came out of the closet. I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. I'm from Chicago and I moved from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky to get my doctorate. And it was after my first year of graduate school that I decided to go home and break the news to my parents. And I told them, I am gay. Now, my parents were not Christian. We weren't raised in a Christian home. My mom gave me an ultimatum. And uh, she said, she must e you must either choose the family or choose that. I mean, for me, this was not a choice. This is who I am. I mean, even back in the 80s, in the early 90s, this is uh, a big part of how we understand sexuality, that this is who we are. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. But I told my mommy, if you can't accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. So I went home, devastated my mom. Through that crisis, my mother came to faith, then my father came to faith. Well, I went in the opposite direction, spending most of my free time in the gay clubs. I went from relationship to relationship, seek, 
seeking intimacy and happiness. And I really want to be clear. Whenever I tell my story, I'm just telling my story. I'm not telling anyone else's story. I'm not telling one that everyone else's story is like mine, that gays do drugs. No, that's – some do, some don't. But unfortunately, that is part of my story. And when I tell you it, I have to be honest about that. But I also want to tell people that when you encounter Christ, he will impact every aspect of your life. Yeah. So I began experimenting with drugs, and I started selling drugs sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. Eventually, I was expelled from dental school. So I moved from from Louisville to Atlanta, Georgia, and there I kept doing what I knew how to do best, which was sell drugs. And um, eventually, I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. Uh, My parents came to visit me one time in Atlanta, and I actually told them to get out. And you know the funny thing is they were not telling me what I should do or what I should not do. They weren't even telling me I was living in sin. I knew what they believed. Mm-hmm. But just the fact that they had so radically transformed their lives, that they radiated Christ, that was offensive to me, and I told them to leave. I didn't wow. even give them an opportunity to call up their friends to pick them up. So before my dad left, he gave me his Bible, and I'm like, I don't want your Bible. He left it there, walked out, and as soon as they left, I took my dad's Bible, and I threw it in the trash. I wanted nothing to do with God and certainly nothing to do with Christianity. And it was so obvious to my parents that I was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But they committed not to focus upon the hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. And along with over 100 prayer warriors from their church, from their Bible study fellowship group, they began to cry out to God for me. My mother began to pray a bold prayer, God, do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. That's a bold prayer for a mother to make. Yeah. She was desperate. In her desperation, she fasted every Monday for seven years, once fasted 39 days on my behalf. She spent hours in her prayer closet every morning interceding for me, for many others. She knew that it was going to take nothing short of a miracle to bring this prodigal son to the father. So that miracle came with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep, were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. (laughs) I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in a ditch. Hmm. So I tried calling... dreading making that phone call, just thinking of the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mom's first words were, are you okay? No condemnation, just words of unconditional love and grace. Wow. I, um, a few days after that, I was walking around the cell block and I'm like, I've just destroyed my life. I passed by this garbage can. I'm like, this is my life. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father's got two doctorates. I was just three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made, but now I found myself among common criminals, Hmm. trash. So I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up. It was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell. I opened up that book for the first time. I read through the entire gospel of Mark that night. But you know, Let me tell you, I was not thinking this is the answer. Actually, I simply thought that I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands (laughs) and a better somehow. But as you know, Ryan, as many of your listeners and watchers know, what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. 
Yeah. But what we have is the very breath of God and is living, powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. So I was beginning to read through it, and I'm like, man, this is telling me I'm a sinner. I'm like, that's not good news, telling me that I rebelled against my government, rebelled against my parents, rebelled against the holy God. Can things get worse? Well, it did. I was called to the nurse's office, and she told me that I was HIV positive. Hmm. So I was laying in my bed one time. I was in my cell all by myself, and I noticed somebody had scribbled something, and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, the Lord God was telling me, and he could have used any verse. And he was just as he used the words written by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell Israel in exile that he would bring Israel out of exile. I'm like, man, he could bring me out of prison and still have a plan for me. I don't know what that plan meant, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day, the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. God was convicting me of my dependencies, obviously drugs. Within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. God kept bringing to mind other idols. And there was one that I felt just that I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. So I went to a chaplain and I asked him his opinion. And to my surprise, this chaplain actually told me that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. He even gave me a book explaining that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand, Bible in the other. And, you know, Ryan, if I can just tell you from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming, to justify the way I had been living. Yeah. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture. I wanted to find anything that would actually bless a monogamous same-sex relationship. I went through the whole Bible. I went cover to cover several times. I had time. I looked and I looked and I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point and a decision had to be made. Either abandon God in his word, live as a gay man, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions. And this is really important. By allowing my sexual attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived. Or abandon pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality, by not allowing my desires to control who I am, and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. Mm -hmm. I followed Jesus as the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence pass, I realized my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. It doesn't have to be. You know, I told myself before God loves me unconditionally, and that is true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore God doesn't want me to change. Similar to people who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. Yeah. But I realized that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. I'll say it again. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires, whether sexual or romantic. My identity is not gay, 
It is not ex-gay. It is not even heterosexual for that matter. Because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. God says, be holy, for I am holy. You know, I thought that if I were to become a Christian, that the world or the church I thought was telling me that I had to become a heterosexual. And what did that mean? Well, that meant the more sexually attracted I were to lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian <laughs> man I would be. But I realized that even if, even if I had opted such attractions, I would still need to resist sin. I would still need to flee uh, sinful desires like everyone does. So actually, heterosexuality as we define it, or as Freud defines it, because it's a purely, it's basically a Freudian concept, as heterosexuality as we define it is not is not the goal. God never commands us, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. <laughs> neither did God say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Instead, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So therefore, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's the right general direction, but it's too broad. That includes sinful behavior. Sinful behavior. So hetero opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling, whether I'm tempted, but I need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because yeah. the ultimate issue is not whether I'm struggling, not whether I'm tempted, but the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. And as I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life. And he called me to full-time vocational ministry while I was in prison of all places. And um, so I, I realized that with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I needed to learn more about the Bible. So I called home to collect my parents. I told them, I think God's calling me to ministry. And I asked them to mail me an app only, an application to the only Bible college I had ever heard of called Moody Bible Institute. But there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application into me to prison. I was so excited, got it, tore it open, began filling it out till I realized I needed references. Not from anybody, but these had to be people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. I had some slim pickings in prison, <laughs> but I was able to create a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another prison inmate to write my reference to Moody. So amazingly, Moody actually accepted me. I was released from prison July of 2001, and I started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? Yeah. <laughs> I graduated from Moody 2005, went on to my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College's graduate school, then received my doctorate in ministry uh, from Bethel Seminary, and then in uh, 2011 had the blessing of writing a, a book with my mom called Out of a Far Country. And that's when I introduced this concept of polysexuality in a really short six-page chapter. And I always knew I needed to flesh that concept out. And then 2018 was able to write this book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, which uh, last year, 2019, um, Outreach Magazine named as a, book, as a book of the year for social issues. And it's just been a blessing to be able to, to provide this resource for the church for such a time as this. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. It is, uh, man, it's it's something that even, you know, as some of the comments came in that uh, people had heard this before, it was the third time hearing it, but they can't get <laughs> enough. And I, I would say the same thing that each time I hear your story and I, I play a part of your testimony to my high school students 
um, when I cover the topic of sexuality in my class, uh, because it is so powerful and so important to kind of think about. Um, now, you, you, you mentioned quite a few things, and, and we are going to kind of discuss those and, and discuss uh, the, the truth that is so important that we maintain the biblical understanding of truth, as you talked about in your story, of Having a book that that said that uh, uh, same sex relationships are fine, uh, the Bible mm. approves of it, and and but then looking and seeing what does Scripture have to say, but then also you you have such insight as you even talk about the relationship with your parents of then how to respond, how do we come alongside and, and respond, and, and so you kind of talk about this thing of of love versus approval, and I, I'd like for you to maybe expand on this a little <laughs> bit more because I think that's a difficult one we have in our culture today. It Whether is. it doesn't matter what the issue is, we think as soon as you uh, disagree that you no longer love that you are hateful, you're intolerant. Uh, How can we as Christians really show the love of Christ to people, uh, yet do so in a way that doesn't, I don't don't know, look like we're approving or we're not, (laughs) maybe it looks like we are and we don't have to worry about that. How, How do we live this out? Yeah, I mean, Ryan, you know, with with you teaching in high school and with you traveling and and speaking on apologetics, I mean, you know, the argument is love is what? Love, right? What's wrong with two people loving each other? And and honestly, that's a really powerful argument. And uh, it's something that, that, you know, most Christians, we fumble on. I I don't know what to say on that because love is love. What's what's wrong with two people loving each other? And what we need to do is I always tell, tell people, uh, you know, whether it's in apologetics or in any type of engagement with people, define your terms. Yeah, because the I think one of the, the main things that uh, where that gets that we stumble um, and, and fall is when we don't define the terms. And when people ask a question, we just assume we're working from the same dictionary. Yeah. We're not. <laughs> so, for example, love is love. I mean, on the surface, well, uh, Christians were like, well, of course we can agree with that. I mean, w- so what's wrong with that? But w- what we don't realize is our our friend, our gay friend or our atheist friend or agnostic friend, they're working from a different dictionary. Their definition of love means let me do what I want to do. And, and if you tell me to do something else, you don't love me. That's quite, uh, um, uh, I mean, it, it's, it, that seemed to be the accepted view, but when you actually kind of reveal how inconsistent it is, even in their world view, uh, it, it's shown to be quite, you know, uh, quite lacking. For example, a mother, let's not even get to Christian terms, a mother um, when, with a child, and if she corrects her child, is then she not loving? Because using that definition, it would mean that correction means that that's not loving. It's it's hateful. It's shaming. And shaming is not loving. And yet, I think the most loving thing for a mother or a father to do is to correct their child. We see, we see from Scripture, right? I mean, God, uh, you know, he, he chastises those whom he loves. And we have that there, I mean, a few times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So when we see from that that definition, what love truly means, um, not only from a secular level, but when we dive into the Bible, we see that there's quite a different definition. I mean, we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world. I love that. I mean, we all love that verse. And we need to remind ourselves what it says and doesn't say. It says God loves the world. It doesn't say for God so loved only Christians. It doesn't say for God so loved only those that are not 
uh, in same-sex relationships or don't identify as gay or not in the LGBT, you know, no, it says for God so loved the world. That means everyone, regardless of whether they're Christian or not, whether they're in a same-sex relationship or not, that God loves them all. But does that mean then if God loves the world, then he approves of all our behaviors? And we see obviously not. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remind people to understand John chapter three and that God's love for us, we need to read it in light of Romans chapter 5. I I love Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, where it says that God loved us while we were still, that that word still is so powerful, still, not not sort of or becoming better, but still weak or powerless, some translations have. Verse 8, it says that God loves us while we were still, same word, still sinners. And then it even goes even further and says, God loves us while we were enemies. I mean, imagine that. So no way does God, this is where we get the saying that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. And Romans 5 is just a perfect example of that. Uh, So, you know, and by the way, don't use that phrase with unbelievers, <laughs> love the sinner, hate the sin. It, it, it makes sense to us, but it does, and it can be offensive to those who don't know Christ. But anyway, that's what I mean by how God loves us because our personhood is not um, associated or correlated with our sexuality. That, that This is an important thing because we can separate what we do, what we feel, our experience from who we are. Yeah. And so kind of practically how this gets played out, I think um, your uh, your testimony, your story with your mom and your parents, I think is an example of this because you even kind of shared that before they were Christians, it was kind of yeah. a rejection of you. Uh, yeah. And then after Christians, their attitude kind of changed. So how was it, uh, you said they didn't condemn you, they just right. reached out with unconditional love. So how is it that, uh, that we as Christians can um, truly come around people and love them yet also not give up what scripture teaches and still trying to lead people to to the truth and to Yeah, Jesus. you know you know we hear in the narrative today that non-christian parents I'm sorry, Christian parents are just unable to love their gay, gay children. I mean, uh, the movie uh, Boy You Raced um, and and I mean there's there's you know other similar stories like that where as a Christian parent, you're just unable. Your theological framework, your worldview does not enable you to love gay children. And you actually have to kind of shed that old, ancient, antiquated, outdated Bible teaching, those myths, to actually love your gay child. Well, I had the exact opposite experience. My parents were not Christian. They couldn't love me. They rejected me. It wasn't until they became Christian that they actually were able to love me unconditionally as God loves us. This is, again, coming back to that they were able to love me but recognize that my behavior, though not even pleasing to God, God still loves me and that they could love me as well. So I think, you know, it's it's just so interesting to, you know, especially my my own story and, and my narrative, how that illustrates my, my parents' perfect example. They weren't Christian, and they just could not wrap their mind. My, my mom was conflating who I was with me kind of rejecting. For her, it was more about rejecting the family. And she, she of course, she saw this as me choosing uh, you know, the gay community where, of course, I, I saw this as this is who I am, uh, which is part of the reason why my mom and I wanted to write our story 
from our own voice, you know, with that chapter. So I, I wanted people, parents to hear uh, what the prodigal was thinking, not at all to justify my own thinking, but at least so parents can sometimes get in the mind of a prodigal that they're not always trying to think like, oh, I'm going to get at my parents. It's sometimes just thinking, you know, you know, they feel hurt or they feel like they're attacked. But it was that way that my parents were able to love me. It was be- once they became followers of Christ, and uh, and their transformation was so radical of being able to fully grasp uh, the grace of God. I think apart from understanding the grace of God, we're not able to evangelize properly. We're not even available to um, able to do apologetics properly without understanding that grace that undergirds our own conversion, our own salvation, and is through that grace that then we engage with others. Yeah. That's huge. Is the graciousness, the the understanding of, I think, the forgiveness of Jesus, and and you know Amen. how we all are. Um, now, there's another thing that you kind of mentioned as you were sharing your testimony of, of this idea, uh, and we hear it so often in our culture of uh, this is who I am. Yeah. And you talk about in your book, uh, Holy Sexuality, uh, that being gay is no longer what I'm attracted to, what I desire, mm. or what I do. It is who I am. Uh, there, and you then you say there's no other sin issue so closely linked to identity. Uh, why would you say this is um, something that is so closely linked to identity? And then again, how do we practically uh, address the issue when it's not just don't do that, but it's asking mm-hmm. people to stop being who they see themselves as being? Yeah, yeah, you know, and and I'm just going to begin again with my uh, my experience, and then I'm going to kind of follow it how how we've got to where we are in our culture, and then for kind of biblical view, for my experience, and and I would say. Uh, that my experience in this regard, regarding you know identity, is is very similar to many many other people, um, where where people will say this is this this is not something I chose. In other words, I'm not saying that I didn't choose my behavior. Yes, certainly I did, and I chose to go down the sinful road. But it, my the the actual struggle was not a, a, a choice. The actual temptation was not a choice. And remember, I told you, uh, it, Ryan, in, in my story that it was when I was nine years old. Yeah. And experientially, I could say, boy, I mean, I've, I've had these feelings for as long as I remember. You know, I used to say that, as many others in the LGBT community will say, as long as I remember. But realistically, even if it was nine years old was the first time, I mean, anyone who studied developmental, uh, you know, with children, psychology, et cetera, nine years old is a long time and a lot can happen in that time. So even if someone says, well, I remember as long as I was six years old, I was, I knew I was different. I mean, well, are we not all different? Praise the Lord. We're all different. I mean, even twins are different. They're identical genes, but they're still different people. Um, so experientially it, because sexuality is such uh, a significant aspect of our experience, it seems like, and it, feels like this is who I am. And then when the world keeps telling me this, this is who you are, you know, from uh, the late 80s and maybe early 90s was when we were definitely talking more about sexuality and not not really at all about transgenderism, but more about sexuality. Uh, it was more, this is who you are. You know, you are gay. Our words matter, uh, which is why I, I don't suggest to use that, that phrase, uh, you know, I am am gay words have meaning and when we recognize that the words that we use 
also have meaning, and it, particularly the words that we use to describe ourselves, it have have, have a lot of meaning. But wh- where do we get there? And so, I mean, to look at the culture, how we've gotten to the place where we are taking what we feel and what we do and making it who we are. Well, it goes back, I, I would say, to about the mid-1800s when when our culture, I mean, of course, they were coming out of the medieval period, and, and, and of course, you know, we have the Reformation in the 1500s, and then 1600s, and, and so we have the Industrial Revolution, and we're like, you know, oh, wow, you know, human beings, we can accomplish so much. But then we recognize that there was all this, like, angst, you know, it's not just all about this head knowledge, but they want to come back to their emotions. So then we have this romantic period, and the romantic period was not only a, uh, you know, kind of just a response to the industrial, uh, you know, focus upon just uh, just facts and science and and industry and making things, but it was coming back to beauty and it was coming back to our emotions, whether good or whether bad, whether sad or whether happy, and, and it was kind of those things were celebrated. But it also was a response to religion and organized religion. Unfortunately, they threw the baby out with the bathwater, so. What happened then was a void happened because when you throw the baby out with the bathwater, not only do you throw out religion, but you throw God out completely, then you kind of get this void of what's the purpose of life. If we are just freak accidents and that we have no purpose, no meaning, well, that's not right. We have to create meaning and value and dignity and identity. And so where do we get that? from our experience. And so we get romantic peer from our emotions, our desires, but also we get existentialism where it's all about kind of doing and living and and our behavior. So that's why you get now today kind of the fruit of that where you know we have to create our own identity by what we feel and what we do. But then we look to the word of God and we see that God is not calling us ever to embrace what we feel or do. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us, Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who could know it? Paul says, Romans chapter uh, 12, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our what? Our mind. So I actually can't trust fully my heart. I can't fully trust my mind. I need to submit all to Christ. And therefore, what I feel and what I do is not therefore truth. See, this is where it comes down to transgenderism. You know, when, when it's question about, oh, but you know, this is all about a question about what is male or female. And, and I actually believe it's, that's the secondary question. The true question, transgenderism is really a, a battle for what is true and real. The world says what you think is your reality, what you feel is right for you. The Bible says you can't trust your heart you know, from the heart flow, all these things that Jesus says. And uh, so, you know, we need to then recognize that these things that I feel and do, though strong, though feel real, I need to submit it to Christ. And therefore, then who are we? If sexuality is not who we are, but how we are. See, when we went from sexuality being this is what you do and what you feel to this sexuality is now who you are. The shift from what to who has created a radically distorted view of personhood. So sexuality is not, you know, who you are, but it's how we are. And thinking through that, then who am I? I'm created in God's image. That's from Genesis 1. But then as we become followers of Christ, then we become 
sons and daughters of God. And that's that's the key thing, that my identity has to be as a child of God in Jesus Christ. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, it's so good. Um, I, I want to uh, discuss some of the kind of... Um, I guess the, the the truth that's found in scripture, as well as uh, kind of maybe this this gay Christian movement that is trying to mm. to kind of uh, uh, present a different narrative, uh, and then yes. I, I definitely some good questions coming in, and and so those who are sending in questions, I'll get to those here in a moment. Um, but so so what is it that you have found? So you you went through that book, you you compared it to scripture. Uh, what mm. is uh, maybe start off? What is the truth of scripture, and how can we? Uh, express, explain, how can we uh, clearly teach that truth uh, to someone else? Yeah, you know, uh, you know, when we, when we think about sexuality, and it's particularly homosexuality or same-sex attractions, we often will go to the six passages that are proscriptions telling us what not to do. Uh, regrettably, sometimes people call them clobber passages. And, 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 you know, it's, Unfortunately, when we call any verse in the Bible a clobber passage, I think it's a really trivial treatment of the very holy, uh, valuable Word of God. So I would never call any verse clobber passage because it seems like it's something that I don't understand. There's going to be a lot of uncomfortable things in the Word of God that um, that that don't feel right. But anyway, these are six passages that are very important. But I actually like to start not there with the proscriptions, but with the prescriptions. Not so much telling us what not to do, those are important, but actually beginning with what God has called us to do, particularly when it comes to sexuality. How are we to express our sexuality? What type of relationship are we able to engage in sex? And we see throughout the full counsel of God that it's in the context of marriage. Well, then the question is, what's the definition of marriage? And, you know, instead of going to the Old Testament, which I don't think that that's any less than the New Testament, but we go to the New Testament because some people view the New Testament as somehow better. That's not right. But let's go to the New Testament and let's even go to Jesus's words. Not that Jesus's words is any more special than the rest of the word of God because it's all the word of God. But particularly in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 where it was Jesus was questioned by the Pharisees about divorce, and his response was going back to Genesis. Because the Pharisees were dwelling on Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Mosaic law, and they were arguing about, well, this verse says that, this, you know, Moses allowed this and gives a certificate of divorce. That's all in the Torah, particularly in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But Jesus was like, well, I'm going to use something that, that, that in, in their eyes trumps all of that, which is Genesis, which is, there's nothing more foundational than Genesis creation. And he says, in the beginning, created man the male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has put together, let man not separate or set asunder. The good, good old King James words, let's set asunder. And uh, what we see here is, is actually quite phenomenal. Of course, I mean, it's Jesus' words. But what he was doing was he was pulling not just, he wasn't just going back to Genesis, but he's going very particularly to two passages in Genesis. He started out in Genesis 1, 127, and then he goes to Genesis 2, 24. 127 is, in the beginning, God created the male and female. That's from Genesis 1. And then he goes to Genesis 2, 24, where he says, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Jesus adds his own words because he's God. He says, what God has put together, let man not separate. So let's dissect that a bit because here, what Jesus, he's answering about divorce and instead of just saying specifically, oh, divorce is wrong, he was saying, you know what? Instead of me saying anything about divorce, I'm just going to tell you what marriage is. So in other words, he was schooling the Pharisees. He was giving a class, a master class, right, a master, master class on marriage. 
and he was saying that marriage is between uh, man and woman, and the two shall become one flesh. But why did Jesus have to say that that you know marriage is between a man and a woman? That really doesn't answer anything about the divorce. Some say that that's irrelevant to the question because Jesus was only asked about divorce, and so we shouldn't read more into it. That's actually poor hermeneutics because since when is Jesus ever limited by the questioner? <laughs> so Jesus was schooling them not only on divorce, but he was schooling them on marriage, the purpose of marriage and the essence of marriage. So he was he answered the um, uh, the divorce question by going to Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, but he threw in this extra part of Genesis 1 saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. That's from Genesis 1, 27. And so that then lays the foundation for what marriage is. And you never hear a revisionist actually engaging with that. What I see is the most important point. And also is our, is our friend Sean McDowell pressed Matthew Vines on that. And Matthew Vines really had nothing to say and no response to it. He says, well, that's your interpretation. I have my interpretation, which is really, uh, and he never even explained what his, his interpretation around it, why he thinks that we can get around that. But that's really, I see as a key verse. Then from that foundation, which is Jesus' words, which is actually the words of Moses, the word of God from Genesis, then we build on that for all the proscriptions and the prescriptions. Yeah. So you mentioned there really quick the revisionist. Um, so can you maybe uh, explain a little bit uh, what is a, the rev uh, a revisionist? Yeah, yeah. Revisionist oftentimes is called a progressive view. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, you know, uh, question when they call it progressive because to to be gay affirming is not at all very progressive because it's in ancient times and in, in Rome and and around the time of ancient Israel uh, same sex relationships were very very common so I always jokingly tell tell people this is actually not the progressive view it's the historically regressive view mm. <laughs> but that's snarky so we won't go there but I much prefer the revisionist view because revisionist means it's revising what the church has historically stood for unanimously over the millennia and so the revisionist view is this understanding and not simply what like mainline denominations have been saying for a couple decades already that that you know no god blesses same-sex relationships but they do that because they believe that the bible is wrong in many places so a revisionist view is more this kind of refined nuanced view that says we believe uh, the bible isn't wrong uh, but it's just not condemning a monogamous same-sex relationship and you might be thinking but how can I say that without saying the Bible is wrong? Well, in a very nuanced way, which I always tell people, we don't need more nuance. We just need more Jesus. <laughs> so what they do is they say things like in Genesis 19, they will say Genesis 19 is not condemning a monogamous same-sex relationship. It's just condemning same-sex relationships that are gang rape or same-sex relationships. Well, actually, they will also say it's in hospitality where they get that Ezekiel 16, and, and we can get that later. But uh, then they go to Leviticus, and sometimes there's either ways that they do that. They just say, well, not everything in Leviticus we follow, which is true, but then they never discuss how do we know whether something in the law is something that we follow or don't follow, and they don't. And they kind of ignore the part where Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, which they try to do by abolishing these laws. Uh, or they will say Leviticus and Matthew Vines. I think it's a really, really weak argument. He tries to take this kind of a feminist argument that that the uh, that this interpretation is very patriarchal, and that's why it's you know we don't we don't really follow that anymore. And that is a, a very a low view of scripture treatment of of the law. Uh, then we go to Romans. Um, and and sometimes the same argument that they use for Romans, they use for Ludwigus, they say, you know, well, this is just uh, maybe just referring to pedophilia or it's referring to idolatry. 
um, uh, and and First Corinthians and First Corinthians six and First Timothy one also they believe it could be just referring to um, pedophilia. The problem is the biggest problem with all of these interpretations is they refuse to recognize the intertextual uh, um, allusions between all six of these verses. What do I mean by that? They all kind of center around Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13, which are basically parallel passages, which are the strongest condemnations, clearest condemnations, saying if a man lies with a, a male, it is an abomination. And then 2013, Leviticus 2013 actually gives the death penalty, saying they shall both be put to death, not just one, because if it's pedophilia, then just the older one should be put to death. But it's not. It's both shall be put to death. Both are guilty because, therefore, it means it's both volitional. They both entered into the same relationship. But why? Uh, how do we know that these still stand? Well, because uh, actually 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1 use two Greek words that they put together, that Paul puts together, that is taken from Leviticus 20.13, particularly the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Septuagint, which is actually the Bible of the first century church and first century Jews. And that is a clear allusion back to that. And then Romans 1 is connected back to Genesis, but uses the word uh, – uh, part of the word that's talking about male and female, which is are the words that we find uh, male in First Corinthians six, and the word male that we find in Leviticus, and then uh, in Genesis nineteen we find Ezekiel actually connecting the sin back to Leviticus as well. So that's yeah. that's we see that these are all interconnected, and it's much easier to deconstruct scriptural verses when not only you pull it out of context, but you're not reading it in light of all 66 verses of the Bible. So this is more than just reading it in context. A lot of people say, I'm reading it in context, historical and literary context. Mm -hmm. It's it's more than that. It's, it's also reading it in light of all 66 books of the Bible, where you're showing that these biblical writers are very intentionally alluding back to different inspired verses. And when you do that, you see how the scripture actually is very tightly held together and holds a unified witness of God's truth. Yeah. So when I speak on this topic, um, or it comes up during a Q&A with students, I generally will say, let's just focus on the New Testament. Uh, let's look at Matthew 19, what Jesus says about marriage. Let's look at Romans yep. 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, uh, because it, it removes the the difficulty of how do we understand what we follow and what we don't follow in Leviticus. Uh, and so it yes. says, hey, let's, we don't even have to address that. Let's just go to the New Testament. And we, we that, you know, when it's short on time, uh, yeah. but maybe could you take just a couple minutes, because uh, you alluded to it, uh, how could a Christian respond to uh, the, the question of, well, and Leviticus also says, don't eat shellfish and don't wear, you know, fabric woven of two clothes, you know, two, uh, uh, don't wear clothes woven with two fabric. Uh, yep. Why do you just pick and choose in Leviticus? So how, how do we as Christians understand what we do and don't follow in Leviticus if that question does come up. Yeah, I always tell people, so uh, understanding uh, the law and the gospel is is not an easy conversation, but sometimes we can over uh, kind of simplify things and say at least, because there are some things where, where yes, you know, the, the, there are some things that we aren't, aren't completely certain about whether, whether they carry over or not. So how do you know when something does not carry over for certain? Well, one way is if the New Testament says so. For example, food laws, unclean laws. So, of course, Christians today, we believe that we can eat unclean foods. And I'll just give a big amen for bacon. <laughs> you know, we're able to eat bacon. And why is that? The Bible, Old Testament, clearly condemns and says, do not eat pig, do not eat pork. 
Well, when you read the New Testament, you read verses, for example, Acts chapter 10, where Peter gets this vision of a sheet dropping from heaven and on it are unclean foods. And the voice from heaven says, take and eat. Peter says, I've never, you know, nothing unclean to touch my lips. Then the voice from heaven says, don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. And what does that mean? And that's not just the only verse, because if it's just one verse, then maybe, you know, it, we could, it could be questionable. But many, many times Jesus says it's not what goes into a mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of a mouth. And that's when Jesus was talking about food. Paul was also talking about food laws have being fulfilled in Christ. So none of these laws have been abolished, but they've been fulfilled what? In Christ, when Christ died, he tore the veil between the holy and the holy of holies. So now people who are unclean, for example, like us, I'm a Gentile, and I don't know, right, if you're, you know, but if, if, if all of you out there that are watching, if, if you are not Jewish, then we are Gentile, and that means that we are all unclean, and we don't have any right to come into the presence of God. But because of Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And because of Acts chapter 10, which is the real deeper meaning, true meaning of Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 is not just about, you know, we can eat pork. It's actually talking about how the Gentiles now are able to come into the presence of God and can be part of the family of God. So that's where we say that we know that there are some laws that, that we don't have to follow anymore because they've been fulfilled in Christ, clearly like the unclean laws. And there are a lot of laws on unclean laws. Well, how do we know whether something is unclean law or not? We look at the punishment. So what happens when, like you list, listed some examples, Ryan, like um, wearing clothes of, of mixed fabric, um, or one example is uh, a man in ancient Israel, if you were to touch his wife during that time of month, uh, if she's menstruating, or if she actually is sexually, he is as sexually active with her when she is menstruating. What's the penalty for that? Not death. See, that's very, very important. A person wearing mixed fabric, not death. The penalty is you throw your garment out. The penalty for this man who touched his wife or had sex with his wife, he'd be unclean for seven days, not death. After seven days, he could go through this process of cleansing and come back into the, you know, into the, into the community. So then, then how do we know? Then the question is, so that's how we know when some certain things are not. Well, how do we know when something do carry over to the New Testament? Again, it comes, I mean, to the New Testament community, it comes down to when New Testament authors reaffirm something that is said in the Old Testament. So that's definitely when we know. That certainly is one way when we know something in the, in the Old Testament does carry over. And we see Paul does that not only once in 1 Corinthians 6, but also twice in, in 1 Timothy 1. But another way is also recognizing that some of these laws, the penalty is not just being unclean but the penalty is actually death. For example, honoring, uh, dishonoring your parents. That's still a law that applies today. We're supposed to honor our parents. How do we know that? I mean, the death penalty was actually given then if you dis disobeyed your parents. Uh, murder, the penalty for that is death. And so, um, and the penalty for same-sex relationships was death. The penalty for adultery was death. Do we apply that principle today? Because I know that's the question that comes right back. Do we apply that principle today? Do we put gays and lesbians to death? Or do we put people who are disobedient to parents to death? No, of course not. Why? Because vengeance belongs to the Lord. However, I'm going to say something that might sound radical. I do believe that the death penalty still stands for these sins. And you know why? Because Paul in Romans says the wages of sin is death. 
which is why we all need Christ. Because Christ then took the penalty, our penalty of death on the cross. That's the whole, uh, you know, understanding of the gospel that, you know, death is a requirement to satisfy God's holiness and justice. And Jesus took that upon himself. So that's kind of a, maybe a, a abbreviated way of uh, looking at these, these uh, verses. Yeah, that's good. Now, man, we are, man, we're getting close to time, about 13 minutes. Luckily, you said you could stay uh, late uh, with us a little yeah. bit. So there's a lot of great questions that are coming in. Uh, so right. a question starting with uh, kind of um, that came in uh, in my last, actually, live stream, my last interview with William Lane Craig. Uh, and I it's so relevant to this. And so I kind of want your thoughts on it as well. Uh, and you've kind of addressed this already. So I think it's maybe uh, a shorter response. But uh, the question was, uh, how do we navigate uh, these different viewpoints uh, within Christianity where you have people like uh, Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines sure. uh, who are Christian and they are famous for championing uh, the LGBTQ ideas and approving of these uh, of uh, same-sex relationship as, as being a legitimate holy union. Uh, and their question was, you know, do I trust Ravi Zacharias and William Lynn Craig and Greg Coco and Frank Turek and Christopher Yuan or do I trust Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines? And so you've right. kind of addressed question. some of their uh maybe faulty hermeneutics, um, mm-hmm. but, but to someone who maybe uh, can't see that as well, um, yeah. how, how can they go about comparing what you have to say about what the Bible says versus uh, what a Matthew Vines or a Jeff, uh, Jen Hatmaker uh, has to say about what the Bible says? Yeah, thank you for asking this. Um, and I want to be as clear as possible. Uh, don't trust Christopher Yuan. <laughs> and I'm going to go out there and say, don't even trust Ravi Zacharias, Greg Kokel, all these people that I highly, highly respect. And therefore, don't even trust Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines. Trust God. Trust Jesus. Trust the Word of God. I would say, listen to what I say. Hopefully, you're listening. But don't rely on me as an authority. Don't rely on the late, great Ravi Zacharias as an authority. Listen to what these people are saying. Then you know what? Turn to the Word of God and look to the Word of God. Do not rely and say, well, just because so-and-so says it, then therefore it's true. Because I want to go to the Word of God to show that that and that alone is the authority. And the reason why don't trust even more Jen, Ma- Jen Hatmaker and Matthew Vines is because they have a low, a very low of scripture. Even though Matthew Vines says he has a high view of scripture, when you look at his hermeneutics, when you look at the way he treats the Old Testament and even the New Testament, you see, I mean, even the book begins with this, um, and I'm just going to be honest, really horrible hermeneutics. I use often use it as prime example of, of bad hermeneutics, of where he says that um, that, the, that, that the biblical view of sexuality, which is saying that same-sex relationships are, are sinful, he says that that is bad fruit, and he tries to go to the Gospel of Matthew to make his point, and it is uh, such a distortion of what uh, the gospel that Matthew, the gospel writer, meant, and Jesus's own words. When you write, read that in context of what John the Baptist says, because what Jesus says is actually mirroring what John the Baptist says. And when John the Baptist says that, it gives you more of a fuller under, uh, understanding of what that bad fruit means. And fruit means the fruit of repentance, good fruit, and bad fruit means 
the bad fruit of unrepentance. So actually, that the bad fruit is talking specifically about people like Matthew Vines who are unrepentant. And Jesus says that they're going to cut that tree down. And so it's, I think we have to be very, very careful uh, not to rely on any human being, any human author, any even great apologist like these people you mentioned, Greg Kokel, Ravi Zacharias, etc. These are, I, 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 I do uh, think that they uh, are saying excellent things, but but make sure that as you listen, turn to the Word of God and make sure that that is – because every single person that I know that has turned to a gay-affirming view, every denomination that has done that, you see that they have a low view of Scripture, that what they now have because they have a low view of Scripture and they don't hold to inerrancy. Matthew Vines does not hold to inerrancy, um, that they now have a distorted, a diluted gospel, that the gospel is now just about doing good, being good people, simply helping the poor, and that's it. It's not about all the sinful humanity in need of a great Savior, Jesus. Yeah, well, that's so good. And I, and I think it, you know it's maybe difficult for Christians because— uh, it's sometimes it's easier to just kind of have your respected scholar and your theologian yeah. and, hey, well, my theologian said this and therefore yes. that versus uh, taking those into consideration, but really mm-hmm. doing the study ourselves and looking at scripture. Uh, I think that's so important. Um, I want to jump over here to, to one of our first uh, uh, questions here that came in in the live chat. Um, and uh, it's uh, let me throw it up here at the top. Azusa Pacific University recently made headlines for revising the ban on same-sex romanticized relationships. Should I be concerned with this progressive agenda? Yes, um, great question. And, you know, I I think that uh, let's kind of break this down a little bit. And, and, you know, I I don't want to go specifically into this because this is or about the institution or whatever and their their choices. But um, when we only call uh, the behavior wrong. For example, we're just calling, because and actually I know many denominations that are doing this as well. The United Methodist Church, they, they did that decades ago where they just called the behavior wrong, but everything was okay, and now they've become gay-affirming. Uh, that can be a gateway. This can be kind of a slippery slope. But the problem with that is it ignores Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully after a woman, he has already committed adultery. So Jesus was not only saying that the act is wrong of adultery, but actually the desire is wrong and everything in between. So, you know, for us to say that, you know, as long as two people aren't having, two men or two women aren't having sex, it's okay for them to date or it's okay for them to have, you know, these, even what we used to call these covenant relationships uh, that are romanticized. That's sinful, pure sinful in God's eyes, uh, because those type of relationships are not meant to be, uh, uh, you know, to, to, to be something that God glorifies or that, that God blesses. Those type of relationships are only re- reserved for marriage. That does not mean that two people can't be have like a platonic relationship that is non-romantic. And not, those are very good. And actually, we have to bring these back into uh, where where these are viewed as good things. We have these shallow relationships in the church, and I think that is a detriment, but being get very careful not to view these uh, platonic relationships and turn them into romantic ones. So yes, I would be concerned because because it is saying something is good when it actually isn't. 
Yeah, good. Um, the next one here is actually from my old roommate, uh, Neil Harden. He's been, ah, he's been, Neil. yeah, he's been a guest on the show many times uh, as we live together. He just walked down the hallway and joined me for a show. No way. Uh, great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he hey, asked here, um, what is the purpose of sexual desire, especially for someone who is single or chosen to remain celibate? Yeah, great question, Neil, um, and grateful for you and, and your work. Um, so I think that that's so key because we have this question. I mean, why is it so integral to almost everyone's experience except those who uh, may have kind of these asexual experience uh, where they don't have any sexual desires? But I would say the majority of people, even men or women, uh, have the, the sexual desires. Um, I, I always want, and this is coming from the, my subtitle of my book, that I, I want to think of sexuality in light of God's grand story, which is what? Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And a lot of times we get stuck on these first three and don't really look at it in light of consummation because consummation is, you know, when the old is gone completely and the new has come and we're in the new creation, we are in the presence of God. Um, but thinking about sexuality in that light, uh, we have to remember that G Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says that there will be no marriage in heaven. If there's no marriage in heaven, that also means that there should not be any sex in heaven because sex is only reserved for marriage. And if there is no sex in heaven because there's no marriage, well, then that also should mean that there's no sexual desires because we wouldn't have any desires that are unfulfilled. Um, so I kind of see that actually because there's no marriage, there's no sex, there's no sex, uh, sexual desires, that our sexuality is just a here and the now fixture just as marriage is a here and the now fixture for today and not – I mean for the now and not for the after uh, for the, when the day of the Lord comes. But then why are, there th are they there? I think we actually, I want to put them in context of all the unmet desires that we all have, because sexual desires for a person who has chosen to remain single is not just the only unmet desire that we have on this earth. There's a lot of other met, unmet desires that other people might have. I honestly think that God puts those there for us to yearn what is to come. For example, why are we called to fast? Which oftentimes, unfortunately, we don't. We take that as an option. <laughs> you know, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He says, when you fast. And I think what's the purpose of that? I mean, we all need food, but when you fast, what do we do? crave food. Right? It's just, you know, I, I don't know why it's, I think for men it's harder, but you know, we just crave that food. And when you have those desires, what do we do when we fast? We're to turn those desires and to turn it to the Lord so that we would desire the Lord, you know, as the deer panteth for the water. So my soul longs for you. And I think that's just a good reminder that these desires that I have that feel so natural, that are often very strong, my desire for food, my desire for sex, my desire for intimacy, when they are unmet, I think God intended that some or many of our desires would not be met for what? For the intent that we would turn to God, not turn inward, not turn to the world, but we would turn to to the hope that we will have for that fully to be restored, revealed, and fulfilled in him. Yeah. Wow. Um, so kind of, I guess, uh, going off that a little bit of these desires that we then have, um, 
the question came in here at the very beginning. I've heard it said that homosexual tendencies are not the problem, but simply mm. symptoms of a deeper core problem. Do you agree? Well, there's many layers to that, um, and I'm not too sure how exactly that is. I would say, and I'm going to take the way that that is mostly said, usually when that's said, it means that there's a deeper core problem. And when people talk further about that, they usually use terminology like the root causes. And then uh, when they talk further, it kind of goes clearly more into this this developmental framework which means developmental as in kind of more cycle uh developmental psychology framework which is um, that uh, same-sex attractions is the primary root cause of same-sex attractions come from these deeper core problems and, and of course this is what people say not not me but people say from these deeper core problems or there's deep uh core root problems such as an absentee father, dominant mother, or abuse in one's childhood. That's kind of the general uh, way that oftentimes people like that will respond. And so we need to then find uh, and counsel and go through therapy and, and groups, support groups, to kind of get at, reveal these core issues, bring them out, have them kind of resolve those, like you and your dad have to kind of become closer friends and resolve some hurt feelings that you have. And that then will bring resolution to your homosexuality. And then you can fully, and you can kind of no longer be blocked uh, from growing in that way, developing in that way and develop into a fully homosexual person. That's kind of, I'm just giving you the background of that. Now, I don't hold to that. Uh, not to say that I don't think, I, 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 not to say that I think that this should be made illegal. I do not believe that because I think that's a complete overreach of a kind of tyrannical government to, to do that. Uh, because what do congressmen know about psychology, please? I mean, you know, so, but with that being said, I don't find that as the true Christian response. Why? Because though those could be influ influences, it's not the true core problem. Because remember I said before how I said, don't really believe necessarily me simply because I said, believe what the word of God says. The word of God calls homosexual behavior is sinful. And if the behavior is sinful, then what's the core problem of sinful behavior? Not our childhood. See, that's pure Freud. And unfortunately, sometimes people are more busy following Freud than Christ in the Bible. I think we need to then turn to and see these as influences, but the only core problem is our sin nature. And we, when, when we recognize it as that, we would almost rejoice in a sense, not saying, oh, yay, it's sin, but rejoice in the fact that the coming of Jesus was purely to give a solution for sin. He was victorious over sin and death. And when I see this as the problem, I know then that Jesus Christ is the answer. I know that's a very simplified answer, and it seems simple, but it's not at all. But my point is I'm pointing back to the gospel. I'm pointing back to Jesus, and I'm pointing to the church, uh, the body of Christ, which is part of the answer in, in this issue. That's good. Now, I think then that this kind of uh, brings up two uh, questions in my mind. And the first one is you kind of address the uh, the absentee father abuse or, uh, you know, the mother and that kind of uh, upbringing kind of idea that that leads to these desires and these attractions. Uh, the other that you often hear is this idea, well, I was born that way. Um, mm -hmm. Can you say a quick little thing on, on the, the response of, well, I was just born this way? 
Yeah. Why you know, would God make me gay kind of thing? Of course. And, and, and I get it, you know, because I was there, you know, I, when people say I'm born gay, I'm, um, I, I kind of have a little bit of a different response maybe from some Christians that are like, why in the world do they think that? I was like, I know exactly why they think that because it felt that way. It definitely, from my own experience, felt that way. However, when you do the research, you know, people like to say Christians, we don't believe in science. I believe in science. But I also believe the limitations of science. People are like, I believe in science, but you need to tell them, do you know that there's limitations to science? Do you know that science is not purely objective? But when science, let's just, you know, people who say they believe in science, um, you know, you look to science and you have to realize that nothing is yet conclusive. It's very likely that there are multiple components, some that could be biological, some that are social, uh, you know, uh, part of society and environment, um, and but and psychological. But there's many, many components, and even it could be even some genetic uh, points. Not a genetic gene, or there's no one genetic gene, but there's all oftentimes many different uh, genetic aspects or genetic influences, and that should not throw us off as Christians. Why? Because we have to go to, again to the Word of God. The Word of God says that the problem is sin, and the problem of sin and the problem of the fall says that this is not something that happened, you know, years after we're born. We were all born sinners. When people say, "Well, I didn't choose this," well, as a Christian, we know that I didn't choose to come from Adam. I didn't choose to have a sin nature. Someone might say, I had this as long as I remember. Well, I've been a sinner for as long as I remember. I remember Psalm 51 says that we are born in sin. So that really helps us to recognize, you know, what is the core problem. But at the end of the day, many people are convinced that, that people are born gay. As a Christian, I need to tell myself, Jesus has already answered this question in John chapter 3, where, where, where we were before, that though... People might think they're born gay. Jesus says, you must be born again. The old is gone. The new has come. In Christ, you're a new creation. Man, there's nothing more gospel than that. I always want to point people back to the power of the gospel because that's where the answer is. So good. Well, uh, our video, I think, just crashed right in the middle of that question, and it might be going down again. So uh, for those, if, you, if it's still working and now I'm getting some weird messages, uh, I'll chop that out and uh, make it a shorter video uh, to, to get that answer. Um, so when we then look at, um, I got distracted with all that going on, uh, the, right. the, the, the second kind of then uh, question that came to mind, and now I'm just blanking on that second question. Um, oh, uh, the, what you talk about then in your book, Holy Sexuality, is is the mm. idea that um, I've heard Christians talk about this idea that when you come to Christ, when you repent of your sin, uh, that that uh, desire should go away and that we should kind mm. of expect people to become either heterosexual or at least that desire goes away. But you talk about, again, that's yeah. not the goal. The goal is holy mm -hmm. sexuality. So what could, what should our expectations be in uh, response to someone who has same-sex desires and uh, and does come to Christ. Yeah, and I think, again, some of this comes from this, uh, that we're beginning with a faulty framework, that instead of beginning with where the Bible begins with the framework of sinful nature, uh, we're beginning with this framework as this uh, homosexuality is more like a disorder or a disease or a psych developmental problem. And because if we view it in that way, then the cure would be that you'd fix them and they kind of just switch like a light switch. 
However, we see scripture does not view this as a developmental problem. They don't view this as, you know, um, sin is because of you had a bad mother. No, sin is because you're a sinner. Sin is because we had, um, uh, you know, uh, parents long, long, long time ago, Adam and Eve, who rebelled in sin. But but at, at the end of the day, it's not you're a sinner directly because of parenting. So when we see this as um, sin, then we understand then what happens when a person becomes a Christian, what happens with their sin struggles. They don't go away. But it does mean that we're no longer in bondage to sin. So there's a big difference. We are, that's a whole talk about becoming Christian. When you are saved, what are you saved from? You are saved from the bondage of sin. Actually, redemption. What's the what's the meaning of redemption in the Old Testament and the New Testament? Redemption is a word that means that you redeem someone out of what? You redeem them specifically out of slavery. So we all were slaves to sin. That's pure, that's that that's Paul's words. We were all slaves to sin, and now we actually, you know, even Paul says we are now slaves to Christ. And that then means that we are going to continue to be tempted. Paul in Romans 7 it says, I do what I don't want to do. Um, and we need to be able to differentiate between the difference between temptation and desire. In this conversation, when it comes to same-sex attractions, we get a lot of confusions because some people say same-sex attractions are sinful. Some say that it's not sinful. And and if you notice in my book, I decided to kind of avoid the 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 whole debate around the word attraction. And I said, let's just use biblical terms, biblical because attraction is not found in the Bible, but the word temptation is, and the word desire is. Well, desire actually, and, and you'll have to read my chapter on that, but that, that desire, that word, we find out that um, all wrongly ordered desire with the wrong purpose, with the wrong end, with the wrong telos, is sinful. So it's not that desire turns into lust. Biblically, the word that we translate lust is the same word in Greek that we translate as desire. So then what about temptation? Well, we look at passages where it says that Jesus was tempted for 40 days in the desert. It even says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was tempted in every way. So being tempted is not sin, but giving in to temptation is. So therefore, a Christian, when they become a Christian, they're, they don't just kind of have this kind of frontal lobotomy and they have, you know, they're no longer tempted in any way. They still may be tempted, but we now have the Holy Spirit to say no to our temptations and not give in to temptation. Yeah. So what then kind of uh, maybe words of encouragement do you have uh, to kind of the millions of or however many there are LGBTQ single or even married Christians seeking to faithfully follow and serve God? Yeah, you know, it would be not really that it wouldn't be different from the message that I give to all people. That's why I I really um I, be I believe that this message of holy sexuality is the message not just for those in the gay community, but just for everyone. And holy sexuality is that God lays out for us. And when I say holy, it's not just kind of purity or being righteous, 
But in the Bible talks, holiness is being set apart, devoted to God. So our sexuality needs to be set apart, meaning that we're going to be different from the world. Because when Jesus, uh, when uh, Jehovah was talking to Israel, he was setting them apart as holy from all the other nations. And that's what we need to to do today. Set ourselves, our sexuality apart from the world, but also devote it to the Lord. And so when we look at the the proscriptions and prescriptions from the full counsel of God, we see that God only lays out two paths for us. One path is if you are single, then uh, you will be sexually abstinent. But if God provides you a, a spouse of the opposite sex, then how do you live? You will be uh, faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex, because I'm only using the definition that Jesus did on marriage that, that he got from Genesis. So holy sexuality is quite simply chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And uh, I, one of the first things I, I want to encourage everyone, and I tell this to all my students at Moody, that, um, and these, many of them do not have same-sex attractions, that don't make marriage an idol. We too often make marriage an idol, and people are like, how dare you say that marriage is an idol? Well, the most deceptive form of idolatry is when we worship something good. Marriage will not make you whole. Marriage will not make you happy. Marriage will not give you contentment. Jesus will. I tell my students, you know, and I get this from, uh, you know, where Jesus, where Jesus says, the two shall become one flesh. Notice that it does not say two halves become one flesh. It says the two, meaning two wholes become one flesh. So I tell my students, before you become one, be whole. In other words, before you become one in marriage, be whole in Christ. So what I want to say to my friends uh, and you know all the tens and hundreds of thousands of people out there that might have same-sex attractions and, 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 and identify as a Christian and, and are born again, I would say follow Christ first and foremost. Love the Lord your God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, love your neighbors yourself. But when it comes personally to your sexuality, um, I would not say that you that God can not do the impossible, which right now feels like that you'll never be able to have any desire or attraction to someone of the opposite sex. You don't know. Now, that's not a promise. That's not going to be the norm. But I know in some. So let's just not like, for example, if, if I, heaven forbid, have cancer, I'm going to hold on to this truth that uh, that God can uh, and he might heal me on this side of glory. I know that he definitely will heal me at some point, whether on this side of glory or the other, but I'm, I'm still going to open my hand out for that possibility that God could do that impossible uh, impossible thing. So I would say that for Christians who have same-sex attractions, hold that out. Don't you know plan your whole life and say that this is what it's going to be forever. However, do rejoice in the fact that for today you are single, and that God has given you all the grace. I mean, the way that Paul talks about singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 is quite amazing. I would encourage everyone to read things on Barry Danilak, who's written incredible things on the biblical theology of singleness. He's written a book, uh, Crossway, that you can get here in the U.S., but there's also some in, in the U.K. Um, that where he got his doctorate at uh, Cambridge. It's a little, little short 28-page booklet, which is probably the best thing I've ever read on singleness. Uh, but that was so encouraging for me as a single man to remind me that, you know, the things of this world that I see as such so hard pale in comparison to what's what's going to happen. But also, it as a single person, I need to press into the body of Christ because that's my family. Though I might not have children, I can have children. How? By having spiritual children. Yeah. 
I can have fathers and mothers. How? By having spiritual fathers and mothers. So it's really pointing people into the body of Christ, into the church of God, to seek out that connection. So oftentimes, uh, you know, we talk, think about friendship, but I actually I want to press that further as the New Testament presses that further. Not so much talking about spiritual friendship, but actually the New Testament in the Bible talks about spiritual family, because that's where we get our needs of intimacy met. And that is so huge, because that seems to be one of the mo things I hear most often from students is, well, if you're telling someone they can't get married, then you are uh, saying that they have to be lonely the rest of their life. Right. And one is, is saying, one, we're not saying that your attractions will never change. That's kind of a cultural idea mm -hmm. that your attractions will never right. change. But you share beautiful stories uh, of, yeah. uh, of when attractions Your do friend. change. But even mm -hmm. if they don't, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I heard this from you or just uh, other places, but it's like there are some people who are married and are probably more lonely than single people. Yeah, yeah, and then there are single yeah. people that are lonely, uh, more lonely than married people. And, and the idea is it's right. not whether you're married or single, it's do you have close relationships, uh, a family in the body of Christ that is surrounding you no matter who you are. And so we're not calling people That's to right. loneliness, we're calling people to holiness. And and you talk Amen. about how that is uh, the same with everyone. Even the comment came in uh, that kind of uh, even addressed your your idea of holy sexuality, that uh, chastity uh, in singleness and faithfulness and mm -hmm. marriage is, is, yep. is a standard that applies to every single person. Everyone irregardless of mm -hmm. your sexual attraction, your desires, uh, and that is the equality, and that's what God is calling us to. Amen. Wow. Well, uh, we went over time. I thank you for that. The video is, cho the video <laughs> no is chopping up, and so I'll figure out how to fix it if I need to. Uh, but Dr. Yuan, I so appreciate uh, what you've done for coming and answering these questions. Oh, I know that Ryan. there are many, many, many more practical questions that we could have addressed. Uh, maybe in the future, have you on again to, to discuss those. Yeah, that'd but be great. Thank you so much. I encourage everybody to go get a copy of Holy Sexuality. Uh, learn how to love uh, and respond to the family members, the friends, and the people around you and, and really integrate the gospel uh, in with this. So thank you so much for coming on and discussing this. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. God bless Absolutely. you. God bless you. And so for those of you watching, hopefully everything worked out. Again, as always, subscribe, like. Uh, this is brought to you uh, by donations, by just me working and, and doing different things. And so I just encourage you, if you uh, enjoy what you are seeing here, uh, there's more interviews that are coming up. Greg Kokel on July 10th at 10 a.m. Uh, discussing uh, how do we share our faith, as well as um, I'm having... Bobby Conway coming on July 16th to discuss uh, doubt and, and what do we do with doubt. So again, if you enjoy the show, subscribe, follow, like it, uh, go to the link below in Patreon and, and uh, give a donation if you want to support in that way as well. And thank you so much for listening. I hope that this has challenged you to think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview and how do we respond and truly love people who stand up for the truth of Christ. Uh, again, thank you so much for listening, for watching. My name is Brian Polly. Have a wonderful rest of your week and God bless. Won't hesitate to follow your love.